Oftentimes, uh, just life, just the way it works, life tends to present us with some important choices, and some of those important choices are very exclusive. You notice that? Like, uh, you know, when you choose one job, that means you necessarily reject others, right? When you choose one college, one house, you know, you, you reject the others and you have to pick one. When you, when you decide to get married, as we heard about this morning, necessarily that's an exclusive choice, right? Shelby, if Landon decided, you know, I'm going to pick Shelby, but I'm also going to pick, I mean, not exclusively Shelby, would, that, would you be okay with that? No. It's an exclusive choice. And, and life presents us lots of those, really. And when it comes to faith, when it comes to how we think about Jesus, choosing Jesus re- re- includes rejecting other things. Jesus made it very clear that he is one of those kinds of decisions where it's got to be an exclusive decision to choose him and reject many other things. You can't be kind of with Jesus. He's going to say today, you're either with me or you're against me. This is one of those things about biblical Christianity that drives some people crazy. Lots of people are fine with Christians believing in Jesus, but when Christians start saying the only way to God is through Jesus, through our God, people get bent out of shape by that because it's exclusive because it is a rejection of other ways and people have a hard time stomaching that it kind of a lot of times it goes like this how can christians be so arrogant how can you believe that you have the only way and nobody else does have you ever heard anything like that well listen it's christians didn't make that up jesus is the one who said that It's not Christians, it was Christ. We only say that because we're following Christ. And there's no such thing as following Jesus and his teaching without following them exclusively. You can't follow Jesus and dabble in other religions. He said that. It would be just like me deciding... I was going to be married to Rachel's, Rachel, but dabble in, in other relationships as well. You can't be kind of with Jesus. You have to be all the way with Jesus, or you just as well be all the way against him. It's going to be his words and not mine. That's what today's passage is about from Matthew chapter 12. Um, this, is a, this is a point in the book, I mentioned this before, chapter 12, after this point, the book sort of changes during the first um, 11, 12 chapters has been about who Jesus was or in his life, who he is. And he's presenting lots of proofs through miracles, through fulfilling scriptures. He's, not, he's checking off all of the job descriptions of Messiah so that people could know that's who he was. And he's been offering the kingdom to his home country of Israel. But that's going to change basically today. Because in this chapter, Israel's leadership 
sets their face against Jesus once and for all. And after this point, there's going to be a lot fewer miracles in Matthew and a lot more teaching. And the teaching is not going to be... All the miracles were sort of outward. Hey, everybody, Messiah's here. Look at all this evidence. you got the evidence of John the Baptist and the Word of God the Father, and he's fulfilling the Scriptures. He is the one. But after Israel rejects Jesus, his teaching turns a little more inward, and he starts teaching mainly 12 men, 11 of whom will become his apostles. And he's going to start teaching and training these men to take the hope of the nations, he said last, we said last week, to the world. It's like the uh, one preacher says it this way, when Israel, when the elites of Israel reject Jesus, it's like the blue chippers rejected Jesus, so Jesus replaced them with the cow chippers, right? The regular guys, the blue chip guys are out, the cow chip guys are in, and Jesus takes a bunch of just regular dudes and through them changes the world. And we're going to see today that rejection. We're going to see a, a hint at least why they rejected Jesus. It wasn't a lack of evidence. And we're going to see the really scary part of the Bible where Jesus says there's one sin that can never be forgiven and only one, and I'll explain that when we get there. First, let's read our passage together. If you've got uh, a Bible, or if you don't have one, there's one underneath the, the chair that maybe you're sitting in. It'll be on the screen too. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Okay. All right, Matthew 12, 22 through 32, reads this way. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man can't be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Verse 28. But, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless first he binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. That passage starts with what I believe is a symbolic miracle. I don't mean it didn't really happen. It really happened. But it, Jesus picks this, this miracle out intentionally to do um, in this conversation. He's in a, the, a man who is, he's, he's got several problems. He's demon-possessed, he's blind, and he can't talk. He comes in and Jesus heals him. Here's why I 
think this is symbolic. I think this man symbolizes what the nation of Israel is rejecting. At this point, the nation of Israel, Israel's religious leaders are in the grip of the devil. They're blinded because of it. And they're not speaking the truth. Israel was supposed to be God's mouthpiece proclaiming to the world the wonders of God. But right now they're demon-possessed, mute, uh, and blind. They don't see the truth. And by healing this guy, Jesus is symbolizing, this is what you guys, leaders of the nation of Israel, are rejecting. Your chance to, to have your eyes opened, to actually speak the truth, and to be released from uh, the captivity the devil's got you in. And, and the response and the responses to this miracle is what sets up today's conversation. The crowds respond first. Jesus has been doing miracle after miracle after miracle, chapters and chapters of miracles. But they see Jesus um, heal this guy, and the crowds are amazed again, and they say, can this, really, can this be the son of David? Could he possibly be the one? In the Greek, it's, it's, they're more skeptical than it sounds here. I think their thought process is like, man, the religious leaders don't like Jesus. They say he's not, but... I mean, there's kind of some evidence that he is. And that is what sets the Pharisees off. Here's where we see a hint about why they reject Jesus. In the middle of the screen there, it says, But when the Pharisees heard this, heard what? When the Pharisees hear the crowds considering Jesus' resume, that's what sets them off. The Pharisees didn't suffer from a lack of evidence about Jesus. The problem that the Pharisees, and we'll see the scribes are with them too, and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, their problem is power, control, pride. They want Jesus to be their kind of Messiah, do what they want, and when Jesus refuses that, they don't want anything to do with him. They wanted the bad guys to be judged, and the good guys like them to be exalted. And like we said last week, there are no good guys. So Jesus just as well go and eat with tax collectors and sinners because if he can't eat with them, he can't eat with any of us. They want Jesus to pour out his wrath on the Gentile nations and exalt Israel. Jesus came to save, to offer admittance into the kingdom to all the nations of the earth. So they don't want anything to do with Jesus. And here's what they say, really important to, uh, to understand Jesus' enemies never said he doesn't really have power. They just gave the wrong team credit. Here's their, how do they explain Jesus? I mean, that's a problem. If he's not the Messiah, even though he's like hit all of the bullet points of Messiah's job description and he has all this obvious power, how do you explain what, why he can do what he can do? And they say he does, he, he does not cast out demons except by the power of Beelzebul. That's a, a first century Jewish nickname for Satan, the devil. Sure, he's got power, but it's devil magic. He's indwelt by uh, Satan. By the way, that idea that Jesus was a sorcerer, you know, empowered by demons, persisted for over 300 years. The Mishnah, you ever hear the Mishnah? The Mishnah is 
um, when the Jews collected um, their rabbinical teachings, which is mostly oral tradition, when they collected those and published them officially, that was 300 years after Jesus. And Jesus is mentioned in the Mishnah, even though it had been 300 years. 300 years is a long time. 300 years ago, George Washington wasn't born yet. And that's how long 300 years ago was. 300 years after Jesus, the Jews still have to, in one section of the Mishnah, explain Jesus. How do you explain Jesus? And you know what the Mishnah says about Jesus? He was a sorcerer worthy of death. It's still that line. Yes, he was powerful. But it was Satan's power, not God's. Now, after that, Jesus is going to explain, after that little statement, Jesus is going to explain why, why their reasoning is unreasonable. <laughs> Jesus is going to t- attempt to let the crowds hear this. What they just said, that I get my power from Satan, makes no sense. And I'm going to tell you why. That's verses 25, 6, and 7. This is the, you know, no kingdom divided against itself can stand, very famous saying, here's Jesus' main argument, why their argument, their, their logic is faulty. It goes something like this. Elsewhere, Jesus said Satan's goals are to steal, kill, and destroy, right? Satan not really big on helping people, not much of a helper, that's Satan. He's more of a harmer than a helper, really. And so Jesus says, why would Satan empower somebody to do what I've been doing? Satan's not a helper. (laughs) He's not a healer. He's a destroyer. He's a murderer. I've been releasing people from demons, healing people, letting the blind see and the deaf hear. Satan doesn't do that kind of work. Why would he empower someone to do the opposite of his goals? And then he says this, you know, a house divided against itself won't stand. Uh, In the ancient world, this happened a lot in royal families or from time to time. In royal families, that household, if they got divided against themselves and started infighting, if that lasted long enough, enough, what happened to that kingdom, to that royal family? It got weakened to the point where some other family whipped them and took the kingdom, right? A house divided against itself won't stand. Happened a lot in the ancient world. All right, this dad, I'm going to kill all the children from this wife, and then they get mad, and they start killing all the brothers over there. And before long, we're so focused on survival from inside, someone from outside whips us, and we don't have a kingdom anymore. Jesus says, Satan's too smart for stuff like that. He he wouldn't empower somebody to work against him. Then Jesus says this in verse 27. This can be the confusing part here. He says, and if I cast out demons by the devil... By whom do your sons cast them out? The reason that's, a, that's confusing is because he doesn't tell us who your sons is. And there's two acceptable interpretations of this. I'll give them both. I really don't care which one you buy because they're both fine. I've gone back and forth. Your sons might be, this is verse 27, by who do, if I cast out demons by, or excuse me, yeah, cast out demons by Satan's power, who do your sons cast them out by? Your sons might be just Jewish exorcists. There were uh, religious Jews that helped people with demonic issues. And if that's who Jesus is talking about, here's what he's saying. 
Am I the only one you accuse of being, of casting out demons by Satan's power? I think I am. Why do you accuse me of doing this by Satan's power and not the other Jewish exorcists? I know why. Because they operate under your authority and I don't. So you decide who's from God based on who agrees with you. You're being a hypocritical. I, I cast out demons and it actually works. And you say I'm from Satan and you don't, you don't say this to the people who recognize your authority. That's one interpretation. The other one goes like this. Here's where I lean right now, but I'm not dogmatic. I think maybe the your sons is the disciples. And here's why I say that. Back in chapter 10, Jesus sent the disciples out. The first verse of chapter 10 says, He gave them authority over unclean spirits so that the disciples could cast them out and heal all kinds of diseases. So we know the disciples were doing this. But listen to what Jesus is going to say in chapter 19. He tells his disciples this. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, when I sit on a glorious throne, Jesus tells the disciples, you who have followed me are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. So what Jesus might be saying is this. If you think I cast out demons using devil magic, then you must think my 12 friends here are use devil magic to cast out demons also. And I want to warn you, you're about to cross a very dangerous line because you are also looking at your court tribunal that's going to stand in judgment over you And if you set your face against us now, it's going to go bad for you on Judgment Day. Either way, um, Jesus is setting the stage to tell these guys, opposing me is a really bad idea. Also, I like that last interpretation because again, blue chippers out, cow chippers in. You guys think you are the judges of Israel. But these 12 fishermen and tax collectors, these just regular guys, they're the ones that are going to judge all of Israel someday. And then Jesus says this. The second half of this passage is about why opposing Jesus, not being all in with Jesus, is a really bad idea. Starting in 28, 9, and 30, where Jesus says this, But if I'm legit, if you are wrong... And I don't cast out demons by devil magic. But if I'm legit, and this is the Holy Spirit doing this through me, then you guys are in big, big trouble. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has already come upon you. This version says overtake you. Um, I don't know that that carries the force in English that maybe it should. Here's what Jesus is saying. If I'm legitimate, if I really am the one and you guys reject me, then the kingdom of God has already run over you guys and you don't even realize it yet. You are are defeated. You're crushed. And you don't know it. It's the the full weight of the kingdom has come upon you. Verse 29, another maybe confusing little parable. Jesus says, I don't cast out demons because I'm in league with the devil. I cast out demons because I'm stronger than the devil. 
Verse 29, he says, How else can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his property unless he's strong enough to tie up the strong man and then he can thoroughly plunder the house? In this little parable, Satan's the strong man. Jesus is the one stronger than the strong man. Jesus, by coming to earth, has entered the devil's house where fallen people are blinded from the truth, separated from God. Jesus said, I have come here to tie up the devil and steal his property, which is not like car stereos and TVs. What is, what is the property that Jesus is taking away? It's us, man. It's people. I'm stronger than the strong man. If you, if I'm legit, you guys are in big trouble because you're not going to let me steal you. <laughs> you know what D-Day was? History class. If you failed history, pay attention. You might learn something. Remember D-Day, invasion of Normandy, World War II? The, uh, the Allies needed to get a, an army onto Western Europe to fight against Hitler. And so they invade France. And once that was successful, and the Allies had a, a massive army in Western Europe, Hitler was a defeated enemy. It was over. The only thing, Hitler could not win. The only question was, how much damage could he inflict before he finally loses? Surrounded on three sides, east, south, west, closing in. Was he, was he dead yet? No. Could he hurt a lot of people still? Yes. Could he possibly win? No. That's where we're living right now. Only without, not Hitler, Satan. He's a defeated enemy. Through the cross and the empty tomb of Christ, Jesus has delivered a lethal blow to the enemy. He's just not dead yet. Um, And Jesus wants these enemies to hear this. Verse 30. You You need to decide what side of that battle you are on. And understand you are deciding whether you know it or not. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. We talked about, Jesus has mentioned this concept before. Again, Christians did not invent the exclusivity of Christ. Christ did. A few weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Remember that? He didn't say he wants us to be violent. But but a sword divides. You cannot walk the fence if the fence is a sword. You'd better get on one side or the other. That's what Jesus says here. If you're not intentionally holy with me, you'd just as well be against me. If you are not, if you do not want to see people gathered to Jesus, if you do not want to see other people come to understand He is the only way, then, then know it or not, You're a part of the devil's effort to scatter people from Jesus. Does that make sense? The whole, you need to find your own truth. Well, it just matters how good people are. It doesn't matter what God's name they do it in. Just how how good somebody is, how much they love. That's what really matters. You cannot believe Jesus and believe that is true. 
Because he said, if, you're not in, if you don't want to see people gathered to me only, you are a scatterer. You're either with me or against me. And whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. Jesus' words, not mine. Now, because these men Jesus is talking to have made very clear which side of the sword they are on, not Jesus' side. Jesus has a very special word for them next. This is maybe the, for many people, the most terrifying passage in the, in the Bible because this is where Jesus mentions an, an unforgivable sin. In my seven years of ministry, this is what I've been asked about the most. I'm sure. Because most of us, I think it's very natural, when we read this, when we read, um, people will be forgiven every sin, except if you do blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that's an unforgivable sin. You won't be forgiven now or in the age to come. What do you think when you read that? Most people think either, I hope I haven't done that, or the more pessimistic of us go, oh gosh, I'm sure I've done that. Right? Right? I'll bet I've done that. I just know I have. Um, so I, want to ex- I, better, I better explain this to you so that you can sleep tonight, okay? Amen. <laughs> uh, first, don't miss the good news. This is a good news passage. It really is. Don't miss the good news. Verse 31, For this reason... I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and every blasphemy. We're going to stop right there. Okay, there is an exception. There's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Assuming you haven't done whatever that is, according to Jesus, how many sins have you sinned that Jesus can't forgive you from? Bubkus. Zero. Right? If you think that you have sinned such sinfully sinful sins that Jesus can't forgive you. An uncle told me one time, oh, Matt, if God knows half the things I've done, he'll never let me in. If you feel like that, I want you to know God disagrees with you. And I'm going to suggest we should believe God and not you, if that's okay. It's natural to maybe feel like, yeah, but I, what you're really saying is I don't deserve to be forgiven. Absolutely. I'll agree with you there. But you have not sinned a single sin that is too strong for the blood of God shed on a cross. Unless you've done the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So I better set your mind at ease there. Um, If you were here last week, even if you weren't, you'll, you'll catch this. But last week we had a little Mr. Rogers neighborhood moment, right? Anybody remember the word for the for the day last week? It was the kenosis. Remember that? The kenosis is the theological term for the self-emptying of Jesus. When Jesus had always existed as God, temporarily sort of, he, didn't, he, he, he never stopped being fully God. But he let go of, he emptied himself of some of his qualities. He didn't look like God anymore. He just looked like a first century Jewish dude. Right? And he got hungry and he got tired and he felt pain and, and all these things that he'd never in all of eternity experienced and he need. And part of the reason I brought that up last week is to talk about why Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived such a fully human life 
that he was led by the Holy Spirit, just like you and I are supposed to be led by the Holy Spirit. He was just a lot better at it than we are. And he was so led by the Holy Spirit that apparently the miracles he did were dependent on the Holy Spirit working through Jesus. So here's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You can really see this in Mark. Mark tells a story in chapter 3. Mark says, Jesus says this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thing because they were saying he had a demon. That's what this is about. Here's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. These are guys who were fortunate enough to live in the one place on earth, in the one time on earth that the Messiah, Savior, was going to show up. And they were fortunate enough to know the scriptures that would point him out. And he shows up and he does the works of God by the Spirit of God according to the Word of God. And they decide, I think that's Satan doing that and not God. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark very clearly says, he said that because they were saying he had a demon. So, unless you have seen Jesus visibly do a miracle and start telling people that really that was Satan's power that he did that by, I do not believe you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's what this is. Here's another way I, this is another way I know this. Apparently the rest of the writers of the New Testament, except for the three guys that told us this version of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, nobody else brings this up. I want you to think about this with me for a second. The Gospel of John was written according to John. He said, these are written, I've written this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have eternal life in his name. That's why the Gospel of John was written. I believe it's the only book written to unbelievers so that unbelievers can become believers. John sat down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and said, I'm going to write the story of Jesus, but I want to write the story that tells people what they have to know and believe to get eternal life. And John does not tell us this story, even though he was there that day. So John apparently decided, that's, that's not important. That's not important enough to put in my story about having eternal life. You know why? Because... Once people were reading the Gospel of John, they couldn't commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit anymore because they can't look at Jesus, watch him do a miracle, and tell people it was Satan doing it. Paul writes the book of Romans. You know what it's about? What it means to be a Christian. Guess what he doesn't tell us about? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Neither does Peter. Neither 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, Hebrews. None of it. If this were still keeping people out of heaven we would read instruction about not how to do this in the New Testament. I know that's an argument from silence, but it's a darn good one. That silence is deafening. Now, I don't want to say this wrong, but here's what I'm going to say. Hear me correctly. Here's what I don't like about this passage. I'm not scared that you've done it. I'm not. But this is what I call a focus sucker. Right? If, you're, if you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew and you get to this part about there being a sin that if somebody commits it, there's no going back. God's never going to forgive them. That sucks all your focus, right? It's a sponge and you can't think about anything else. And now I've tried to explain to you how you've never done that. 
Here's what I don't want you to happen as we leave here this morning. I don't want you to go, oh, I've always wondered about that. I know I didn't commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Whew, amen, let's eat. If that's your response, which would be a natural one, you've missed the point of this passage. Just because you haven't done this one doesn't mean you're in line with this passage because there are other mistakes in this passage that we can make and our eternity hangs in the balance. Jesus did not say, if you have never committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then you are with me. It's not what he said. He did say, you're either with me or you're against me. You may not have committed the unforgivable sin. In fact, you have not committed an unforgivable sin. But listen, if you never make a decision to be with Jesus, when you come to the end of your life, you just as well have. You'll have no advantage over those Pharisees who did commit the unforgivable sin. Think about that. If you're either with Jesus or against him, and you don't get to be with him, and he's going to judge you someday, it doesn't matter what sins you've committed, you're still in them. They're still on your account. You are going to have to pay for them because he didn't. You can't be Jesus neutral. You can't be kind of with Jesus. And I would encourage you to search your heart a little bit and ask, have I ever really decided that that's what I'm, Jesus is what I'm going to stake my eternity on? Not, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm better than most people. I try really hard. Not, you know what, I do the Christian, Christianity thing too, but I try some of these other religions also just to make sure my bases are covered. Tell the truth. You thought about that, Right? Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. Have you ever made a conscious, intentional decision to be on that side of the sword, on Jesus' side of the line, and and to say, my salvation is going to rest only on this, that when Jesus died, he absorbed the punishment for my sins. And if you have not ever made that conscious decision, I want to share with you something William James said. He's a philosopher, but this fits here. I like this. He said, when you have to make a choice and don't make it, that in itself is a choice. When you have to make a choice and you don't make it, that in itself is a choice. Here's how that fits in this passage. Jesus said, you have got to make a choice when it comes to me. And if you decide not to make that choice, you're going to just... You've made your choice. Your choice was not to be with Jesus. And the truth of life is none of us know how long we will get to make that choice. C.S. Lewis wrote about this concept, about the idea, some people decide, I'm going to wait till I'm older. C.S. Lewis compared that to a play. He says, life is not like being at a play where you can wait till the end of the play and decide whether or not you liked it. You know, when you go to a play and everybody cheers and the, the playwright comes out on stage, so the way it works with life, when the great playwright comes out on stage, your time to choose has been over. 
Here's the way he says it. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. That will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. It reminds me of Jesus' friend Peter in one of his very first sermons. Proclaim this loudly. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And that man Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. You either want people gathered only to me or you're a part of that which scatters. Would you pray with me and we'll close. Father God, um, I will admit the exclusivity claims of Christianity have bothered me at times. That there's only one way. It's, it's bothered me. I can understand how it's offensive. But that you made a way at all is the miracle. And Lord Jesus, you encouraged us to choose, to maybe choose this day whether we are with you. And you told us if we're not with you, we're against you. Thank you for providing a way. Thank you for making it clear that that way is Jesus. And that by believing in him, we can have life in his name. If you are here this morning and you have never made a conscious decision to be on Jesus' side of the line, to trust your eternity to Jesus alone. If you've felt, as I've talked about this, the Lord's stirring in your heart to make that decision, do not wait. You make that today. Make it this morning. You don't have to do anything with me. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to come forward. You just have to raise your heart to the Lord. Say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. And I believe Jesus is the one. You forgive me for my sins. I choose you. salvation in Christ, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.